Now, we'll tell you the truth, even if it's kind of hard, because individuals, conservatives, have always been the greatest stewards of the environment. Liberty and limited government and free enterprise. All human persons flourish when those things are in existence. What we enjoy as Americans, we enjoy profoundly in Texas. We don't pick every fight, but if the other side wants us in it, we're going to fight it and we're going to win it. Hello there. This is George C., and you're listening to See the Future, a podcast focused on interesting conversations with interesting people in business, government, politics, and academia. Thanks for listening. And I'm privileged today to be in the offices of the Texas Public Policy Foundation, a great Texas nonprofit institution that I used to actually serve on the board of and known many of the people here for very many years. And we are very, very blessed to have Kevin Roberts here today. He's the executive director and leader and inspirer of the Texas Public Policy Foundation from this point forward. And he's been with them for many years. And we're going to talk policy today. And we're going to talk politics. And we're going to talk about TPPF and its mission and, and how critical it is for the future of Texas. But if, if I didn't have anything else about Kevin, I, I would like him just because he's a hunter, he's a fisherman, and he's an orange blood. Anybody who's got burnt orange in their veins is my kind of guy, especially a conservative Christian <laughs> who went to the 48. Also known as a unicorn. <laughs> well, you, and I are, you and I are two of the very few unicorns out there because I'm in the same boat, and I got my history major at UT, and Kevin is is 10x me on history because he got his doctorate at UT. So can we start there? Would you talk about getting your doctorate in history, what motivated you to do that, and how history is important in shaping the whole man or woman and how it affects your development of policy here? George, first, thanks for having me. You're the second person in two days to ask me that question, and and that is, why did you get a history PhD at the University of Texas? (laughs) And the first person asked me that, which was yesterday as I was walking in my my neighborhood with my wife, was my neighbor who's an Aggie. (laughs) And there was a little twinkle in his eye about that question. I've always loved he people. Gave you. He, he did. He did. And he's a great neighbor. We, we help one another. Love him, even though he's an Aggie. But uh, I love people. You know, I, I grew up in South Louisiana, which is this amalgam of beautiful cultures, usually in concert, but sometimes in conflict. And as I studied the history of that region, I realized that even my own father's family, sometimes living on the Texas side of the state line, sometimes on the Louisiana side of the state line. They were involved in a lot of business, some of it probably fairly illegal in the 1700s, 1800s, like a lot of us. But I became fascinated about that as a teenager. And also as a teenager, for whatever reason, growing up in the shadows of Louisiana State University with a lot of siblings who went there, wanted to be a historian and wanted to study at the University of Texas. I took a circuitous route there through Virginia and and back to Texas. But people often ask me, well, how could you as a conservative Christian guy have survived there at an institution, I'm not even being pejorative by saying it, is known to be one of the more liberal public universities in the country. I was never mistreated. In fact, I tell people I am a proud alumnus. I told that to our our former president, Greg Finvez. We probably see the world a little differently. But I said the same way you treat me as the head of TPPF, I treat you as the president of this university, was the way I was treated in that history department. I was got a great professional education. And as I was explaining to you, I met some, some great professors who saw the world differently. But we loved one another, and we were there for the mission, which was to educate kids. And even though there are some things that we might complain about regarding our alma mater, I think there's always room for hope. 
And that's kind of the basis of the Texas Public Policy Foundation, which is that we'll tell you the truth, even if it's kind of hard, but we're always going to promise a solution to follow from that. So let me pivot to sure. TPPF. We should sure. talk about why you're here, what you do, sure. why it matters, how you have impact. Sure. And then I want to talk about mission going forward. Yeah, put, put simply or at least succinctly, TPPF, Texas Public Policy Foundation, is a, is a think tank. It means we're a research organization that focuses on public policy. We cover everything from education to taxation to criminal justice reform. We're distinctive as a, a right-of-center public policy group that focuses on criminal justice reform. We do that because what animates our work, even though we're non-sectarian, is a belief in the dignity of the human person. And so we talk often about liberty and limited government and free enterprise. Those are important goals, but they're not goals unto themselves. They're goals to the extent that we know from our research, we know as Texans, that we all flourish, all human persons flourish when those things are in existence. And so what we've tried to do as an organization that's focused on ideas, not campaigns, is keep the focus on the former. Campaigns and elections are crucial, regardless of what your your political views are, right? They're crucial. That's not our game. Our game is to make sure that outside of those elections, that the right policies are passed by the Texas legislature. And that's 80% of our work, which is in Texas. But we have recently opened the Washington, D.C. office, which will be up there in, in perpetuity as, as, as it'll be in their perpetuity. And the reason for that is that we believe that one of the problems in D.C., is that there aren't enough people on either side who have a proper understanding of federalism, which is that most decisions need to happen at the state level. But Congress has taken this role of talking about a lot of decisions. They actually make very, very few decisions, which is also historically problematic. But I'm hopeful that the foundation's arrival in D.C. has injected back into Washington a sense that the way you can enjoy life as an American is if your state is making its decision. That is going to mean that places like California and New York are going to make different decisions than Texas. But we ought to celebrate that. That's, that's what this country was founded on. And then let that laboratory of ideas happen. So you go back to the Jefferson-Hamilton debate, sure. which Hamilton won decisively. He did. And to your point, at this point in time, and it's actually ironically epitomized by the, the Republican president and the Republican Senate today, he won way too big at this point. The federal government is the leviathan. That's right. The states have got to recapture some of the purposes and and um, decision-making and priority that they were intended to have from the beginning. No, that's, that's really well said. In fact, it reminds me immediately of Roosevelt, of Teddy Roosevelt, because I think that Hamilton's victory, which was really important in the first 70 or 80 years of the country's history, and I appreciate a lot of what Jefferson said, especially about community. But Hamilton's victory became more resounding the deeper into the 20th century we got. And if we had just sort of stopped that victory, if you will, in the early 1900s, I think the country would be a lot better off. And the, you know, this is a nonpartisan think tank. We're unabashedly conservative. But I say this to say this is not a partisan comment. This is obviously a bipartisan problem that both sides have two problems. The first is they want to spend too much money on things that are inefficient and harm people. And the second thing is they don't have the courage to make the decisions that virtuous leaders like Teddy Roosevelt would have had. I'm just, 
I couldn't be more thrilled that Teddy Roosevelt has been injected into our Texas <laughs> conversation. It's all your fault for talking about that statue. I, I have to say the first real Republican governor in Texas, Bill Clements, it was very, very similar to Ted, Teddy Roosevelt in constitution and energy and integrity and drive and not to get political, I don't want to get political. Sure. Let's just say ideological and right. say that that conservatives should not see one inch of environmentalism to the left or desire to buttress the common man and common woman and the hardworking American citizens who are barely scraping by or barely getting along. Just because you're conservative doesn't mean you're only pro-business and you That's don't a, care about anybody exactly else. Right. The conservative philosophy, the argument would be, is ideologically superior for the future of the country. And environmentalism and stewardship of the environment, which not to be religious, but goes right back to Genesis, yeah. is is a sacred trust that can't be forsworn. And you, you hear on the, I don't mean to give a monologue here, but you... you I'm, I'm <laughs> nodding my head, George. Keep going. <laughs> you hear on the, the left about how, all the horrors of environmentalism and all this stuff, but the reality is, is that our, our, as you well know, our water and our air are 20, 25% better now than they were 30 years ago. That's right. And you, you know from being an outdoorsman yourself that the greatest stewards of the environment are men and women who spend out time outdoors. They might be bird watchers. They might be hikers. They might be like, like we are hunters and fishermen. I can think about relatives of mine who most people in the world would think are real simple Cajuns. They're the best stewards of the environment. They need no government to tell them that. They need no leftist tree hugger wagging his finger at them telling them that. They're going to do that, to your point, because they understand that they have inherited this from God, and they want their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren to, to benefit in the same way. I think it's really crucial as conservatives we spend more time talking about that than talking about the interests of the big corporations, which I happen to think almost as much as my leftist friends are evil, too. There's quite a bit of evil in there, and, and, and not to get into the culture wars, but big corporations. I was trying to get you there. Have completely caved on all the culture wars. That's right. Completely caved completely. on where small business and normal people haven't so much. So, yeah, and, and back to environmentalism and what the left really is in, on this particular issue is a, it's a religion yeah. for them. It's not a reasonable, rational dialogue, and and so it's completely emotional and irrational on that side, whereas on the on the more balanced objective side, there's wonderful things we can do for the environment as a steward, but we don't worship the environment. We take care of it. That's right. We take care of it for future generations. And it's you know, frankly the the nature of the or the meaning of the word conservative and, and I mean that in a very serve. Exactly. A very apolitical <laughs> sense, right? That right. the first thing we ought to be conserving is the relationships we have with the people around us, even if they disagree with us politically. We ought to conserve our families. We ought to conserve our communities, our neighborhoods. And we also conserve the environment in which we have the privilege to wake up each day. I think we could spend more time messaging on that as conservatives than we do on some of the free market stuff. And by that, I mean, I love the free market. Don't get me wrong. But I think that over the last 30 years, especially, we've probably inverted that in a way that's harmful. And you go back to Teddy Roosevelt yet again, who established the National Park Service to preserve the environment and preserve it for future generations. And he was a full-throated capitalist for most of his life, at least, until the end. But he wanted to have there be a fair 
capitalistic societies where oligarchs couldn't crush the little guy right. in, in an illegal or unfair way. So he brought in a regulatory system, which has gotten out of control at this point, yeah. but was designed to ensure fair play. That's exactly so, right. Have you heard of Texas 2036? I have. Very okay. familiar with them. Would you comment on TPPF's posture in terms of future planning for the state sure. and what we need to prioritize? Not necessarily from Texas 2036 perspective, even though right. Tom Luce is one of my best sure. friends, but from your perspective. Yeah, I was on a, on a call with, with Tom earlier. We were making the same point, which is that we're about the, what we're facing today with the, the virus threat and, and a potential additional shutdown in Texas, and that was we need more data. But to answer your question, TPPF's posture has become clarified in the last year, posture about the future. We, of course, will always talk about policy, but there's a new initiative we have, which we already had in the works, but we've accelerated over the last month. As we've seen people literally and figuratively tear down this country's history, and that is becoming the Texas Public Policy Foundation, becoming one of those institutions of civil society that preserves what it means to be Texan, what it means to be an American. And we can do that because, you know, as one of our early board members, we're 31 years old. We are, even for people who disagree with us in policy, an organization that looks at the data first. We're an organization that's animated by our love for people, including Texans who might think differently than we do, because this place we know as Texas is so special. I happen to think that as Texas goes, so goes the country. Another way of putting that is what we enjoy as Americans, we enjoy profoundly in Texas. And if we lose that in Texas, we lose America. And even though I'm an optimist, I can say that that is always endangered every single generation unless we water the roots of that tree. And so TPPF, I hope, will play a vital role in the next quarter century as we get to the bicentennial of this great republic. Well, I would definitely agree that where Texas goes, so goes Red America. I'm, I think some of the rest of the country is so different now. You might be able to, to quibble over that whole thing. But I will say for sure that where Texas goes, there goes the presidency. Because if you don't if Texas votes Democrat, then Republicans will never recapture the White House the way the that's, electoral map plays out. Yeah, that's certainly true. In fact, it's it's hard to see. I know you're a student of politics, and, and uh, a lot of us study potential political realignment. But if that were to happen, then it could easily be a half century before you see a realignment that puts Texas back in the conservative column. But let me key in on a comment you made about as Texas goes, so goes Red America. Just to quibble without being disagreeable, if Texas goes, everything goes. And so people who live in blue America benefit from red Texas. They benefit from red Texas because we're not just an engine of prosperity. We're an engine of freedom. We're an engine of flourishing. And if we go, all of those crazy ideas that exist on the two coasts will naturally come to an end because they will not be able to afford them. So Texas is important to every single American, including recent arrivals to Travis County who hate being here. And I, I would I include in on your phrase, disagree or quibble without being disagreeable. And it's very reflective of William Wilberforce, who you're probably familiar with. And most people don't recall that the book Amazing Grace about his life right. as the man who liberated Britain from the slave trade over a four-year epic battle to do so. That was his first crusade. But his second crusade, which you're probably familiar with, too, was the Reformation of Manners, so he called it having civic discourse and debate without being disagreeable and with respecting the other person that you're visiting with. And That's right. we've lost that in this country. And I, I don't think it's going to get recaptured unless conservatives 
bring it back up. Or we, we disagree with those on other sides of policy, but we do it in a respectful, kind, polite way. Well, that's exactly right. And you know, George Wilberforce is one of my heroes. I learned about him when I was uh, becoming a scholar of slavery and, of course, appreciated his heroism, which took some years off his life. But I think about your comment about how we restore civil discourse. It's one thing to complain that it doesn't exist. It's another thing to, as conservatives, think about how we might solve that. And I just would encourage your audience to to know it's not going to happen by elected officials. And it's not because they're bad guys and gals. I'm not suggesting that either. It's because of the nature of politics right now. Alexis de Tocqueville said that if you're concerned about your elected officials, if you're concerned about the, the, the system of government, go look in the mirror. So if audience members are nodding their heads right now saying, yes, we have a lack of civil discourse, it starts with us. You know, it, it starts with really, I mean, it's trite, but getting to know your neighbors, even if they have a different political sign than you do. It's really, really crucial as human beings to know one another at a level that's deeper than partisan politics. So former Senator Rick Santorum is a really good friend of mine. He's a very good friend of mine, too. His chief of staff, Mark Rogers, is a very good friend of mine. And Mark started a group called the Clapham Circle, patterned after Wilberforce and his Mm -hmm. allies, to try to influence culture and media. Because to your point, politics is reactive to what the culture is dictating. So if you're going to change civility in the culture, you got to start at the grassroots and with the American people and the media that influences that. Would you talk about why you're here? why you do what you do, and how you balance your commitment to the cause with family obligations and personal life. I love that question. I'm, I'm here because it's a calling. Um, I believe the Holy Spirit has called me here, and it's a great privilege. And I'm at the Texas Public Policy Foundation in particular because it's a place that I know makes an impact. And kind of going back to that question about another organization, it makes an impact in the way that I want my kids to make an impact, which is in virtue in courage, in love for one another, which doesn't mean you fight any less hard, right? In fact, in a lot of ways, you can fight even harder. And as long as each day when I wake up and ask God to prosper the work of my hands, to be imperfectly as I may be, uh, to go about the work as his instrument, even in a non-sectarian, you know, very not religious kind of setting of politics— then I'll continue to be here. And I can tell people who are not familiar with the foundation or maybe skeptical of the foundation that all 105 of us who are here have exactly the same attitude. We could not be more excited about the future, even though we recognize, as I'm sure we all do, that there are challenges ahead of us as Texans and Americans. And so I, I begin and end each day just praying to our Lord that, you know, let me do my small part to honor the culture of inheritance that I've been given as an American, as an adopted Texan, and I could think of no better place to do that each day than here at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Well said. So we're going to close up with a, a final question related to TPPF and your your convictions. I know from experience as a former board member that fiscal issues and small government and limited government was a key and still is a key mm-hmm. focus of this foundation and that there were a lot of libertarian values and ideals and policy positions behind a lot of what TPPF did. Having said that, you go read Ayn Rand and and Atlas Shrugged and some of these kind of libertarian works, and some of it's not super warm and fuzzy towards religion. That's right. And religious faith. And I'd like to ask you about the Supreme Court decision last week, the Bostock decision and Gorsuch's 
deal and the bathroom bill that we agonized through here in Texas sure. several years ago. And whether TPPF will pivot a little bit over the next 10 to 20 years to, to issues of, of uh, religious liberty as well as economic liberty and small government, it's, it's funny. I remember having a debate on the board about whether we should focus on the word freedom or liberty uh, at this organization. We actually voted on which one we'd leave with. And I was all for freedom because when I think of freedom, I think of William Wallace and— That's right. Scottish independence, and I'm half Scottish and half English. And when I think of liberty, sometimes I think of the French Revolution, yes. which is not a ha- as happy a uh, type of revolution. Could you talk about religious liberty and how sure. that might fit in going forward? Yeah, that's actually an excellent question. The I think TPPF honors these two strands in the conservative movement, which is sort of traditional conservatism, which it sounds like you're articulating, it's it's where I am, and also libertarianism. To some extent, we're a little bit of each, but I think that in the early days, TPPF, whether intentionally or unintentionally, would use vocabulary that was more explicitly libertarian. I think I'm a big baseball fan. I always tell my libertarian friends, and I say this with a smile on my face and with great respect, libertarianism is like hitting a triple when you need to hit a home run. Conservatism is hitting the home run, and and the difference, the difference in I've that. I've got the home run record at home it, okay. high school still. All right, I, good. I like the yeah. methodology. And I was a analogy. career two fifty hitter with a bunch of home runs. <laughs> so the the difference in that ninety feet is a proper understanding of the human person. That boys are biologically boys, girls are biologically girls, and I say that as a Christian with tremendous love for people with same-sex attraction, people who have transgender identity issues, that doesn't mean that we build public policies around them. Instead, what it should mean is that public policy ought to be imbued with even greater love that's explicit. And your question about whether TPPF will get into those issues is one that, and I'm not evading it, I don't evade questions, at least on purpose, that's for the future. It may be something that happens. What I can tell you is that we have gotten into, at least initially, more religious liberty questions questions, because those have come knocking on our door, in particular with school choice and with foster care reform. And I can tell you, we don't pick every fight, but if the other side wants us in it, we're going to fight it and we're going to win it. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm really glad to hear you say that. And I would just add that whether it's you or Kelly Shackelford at First Liberty or these issues are coming for us. That's right. Because with Bostock, it may have on its surface said, we're going to exempt religious organizations and nonprofits from these kind of rules. But you know that the woke left is coming for our churches and our nonprofit Christian charities and things of that oh, sort to force I, them to adopt this. Yeah, I live that. I mean, we stared down the Obama administration at Wyoming Catholic College on two related issues, and we won both. Yeah, well, congratulations on that. And hey, this has been a pleasure. Yes. Thank you for taking the time, and I'm looking forward to future visits like this. Likewise. With that, you all out in the audience, I hope you've enjoyed this as much as we have. Thank you for, for listening in. Thanks for listening to See the Future. This is George C., and I'll hope you join us for our future conversations.